direct to our podcast. What's up, folks? My guest today is Tim Musig, the CEO of JB Prince, which I'm calling the Culinary Gear Wonderland in Manhattan, New York City. I've been shopping at JB Prince for years. Most of you folks probably have had some sort of engagement with JB Prince in some way, shape, or form in the past few years. And on a recent trip to New York, I shot my shot and I asked if Tim would be interested in coming on the podcast. And here we are. If you enjoy this conversation, I recommend you queue up my conversation with Don Wynn, where we we talk all about knives and expensive spoons and being the owner of a culinary gear business. Believe it or not, I think Don Wynn's episode is one of the top five episodes of this podcast that have ever been listened to and downloaded. So cue that up next. If at any point you would like to pause, you want to check out Tim, you want to check out JB Prince online, or any of these specific linkable things that we discussed, please do check out the show notes, which are always available in the description of this podcast or in the show notes. Also, a friendly reminder that if you own a small business and you want to get three months of zero commissions on DoorDash to bring delivery services to your customers, check out the link in the description for that, as well as for listeners of the Repertoire podcast, Yelp is offering $100 Visa gift cards for the first 10 folks, business owners that sign up to get a demo of Yelp for restaurants and learn about how they can help you engage more effectively with your customers. Link to that is also in the show notes. Now let's talk to Tim Musig. Tim, it's great to see you and thanks so much for coming on the show. Oh, thanks for having me. There's an aphorism that got thrown a lot thrown around a lot at a restaurant that I worked at. And the aphorism said, treat it like it's yours and one day it will be. And I'd love to get your reaction to that and how you suggest folks think about that in their work, because your background and how you've kind of ascended at JB Prince, I think is so fascinating. Well, it's, it's, it's funny that you say that because Judy Prince, who is the, uh, the founder and principal, one of the principal owners of JB Prince always used to tell me as a young employee, um, Dress for the job that you want, not the one that you have. So it, it, it lines up almost perfectly. Uh, and I guess, the, you know, the easiest for, way for me to say it is, uh, I think it even starts a little bit before that. I think, uh, I think we're in a business of, of passion. You know, people who cook have to genuinely love it. Uh, and I think you have to stay the course and find something that you love or an element of what it is that you love. And then it'll be much easier in many respects to kind of treat it as your own if you will. Uh, and once you have that, uh, I guess that love affair, if you will, or that passion towards whatever it is that you're doing, um, the hardest part of your day will be the commute quite literally, uh, <laughs> especially if you live in New York, like I do. Uh, but yeah, I mean, I, I have, and it, it, you know, it sounds like total cheese and cliche if you will, but I really have no problems with coming to work. I really love everything uh, that I do, I have feel blessed to have met all the people that I have met in my life, had the experiences that I've had. Um, and uh, yeah, yeah, I think that's the easiest way for me to quickly surmise it. When you made that, because you've had multiple job titles, so, so you've cooked professionally, and then the story goes that you came on as customer service at J.B. Prince, that's and then correct, yeah. now, now you're CEO. And so when you're navigating all of those I'll call them like career chapters. Did you ever have this feeling of sunk cost? I think that's something that a lot of people grapple with, especially if they've decided to kind of change careers or they're just moving into a different role in the organization that they're in. They 
I often tell the story of when I got asked to be a manager, it felt like they took the knife out of my hand and they gave me a clipboard. And that was really hard for me to kind of grapple with because I was like, oh, no, I've spent so much time learning how to cook. And now you don't want me to do this anymore. But I from from what I've been you know reading about you and from what I what I can kind of see of how you operate, you you use it as an asset versus looking at it at it as, oh, this is sunk cost. I'm not going to use this anymore. So did you ever have those feelings? Um me personally, no. I think I think uh, some of that is, you know, at the end of the day, JB Prince is still really uh, it's a small family-run operation, um, you know, and so we departmentally, it's it's symbiotic. You kind of always have to work with somebody, and as you know, people kind of come up, you have to you have to share, and uh, and in that sharing, you in a weird way, I didn't think of it as a younger employee here, but I was, you know, even mentoring people older than me at certain points. I know that sounds strange, but I just had a base of knowledge that they didn't have. And I was able to share and, and build, you know, and build things with them collectively. So in my particular case, no, uh, I, I did have moments as a younger person. And I've been here since 2000, so almost 22 years. And when I was first starting on the customer service side, I did probably have some questions. I, I missed the cooking lifestyle a little bit because it is a lifestyle. Uh, um, but you know, then you're when you're on the beach on a Saturday morning with the the people you love, it, it, you know, you, you pinch yourself a little bit and it goes away. Um, yeah. It, but you know, but I think it's important too. But with you know, with that kind of piece in there, you know, none of none of what I've had, none of my none of my experiences or where I I live at this point in my life at JB Prince would have happened unless I was behind the stove. You know, what I mean, it was integral. So um, you need a little bit of all of it, I guess, is the reality. We. Or at least I and and a lot of the writings and and you know it, it's easy to put an about section of you know like that's the headline from customer service to CEO. What don't people know about that journey for you? You know because that that that's easy to sum up in a tweet, but what doesn't get shared about that progression for you? Um, it you know I think for me the most difficult part in here was um, trying to in some respects uh, win people's respect, if you will. Um, you know, I, I worked for, you know, for Judith Prince and Larry Prince, who's the, the other principal owner here. Um, and they had the benefit of founding the company and giving its direction early on. Most of the people that I, my whole staff, I worked with. And so now all of a sudden they had to work for. And it was, it was not easy. Uh, it wasn't easy for me. And I'm, I'm, I'm more than certain it wasn't easy for them. Um, because... You know, the, I think that difficult thing about once you hit this level of management where you're kind of overseeing the whole operation, um, I think people automatically assume your door is closed uh, and, you know, you're you're less interested in what it is that they're doing. And uh, that's that was kind of hard for me to adjust to because I I felt like I derived a lot of who I was uh, as a manager, as an employee from interaction with others, you know, and so. Um, once you kind of get to the level where you're, the buck is apparently supposed to stop with you, 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 people are a little bit more guarded. Uh, they, they want to share less. Um, so that's, that is, I think, a, a difficult part about being, uh, or the most difficult part about being a CEO. And I think people don't, when they do share, they don't always feel like they have your complete attention. And for me, uh, 
I really do try and listen and, and adapt and adjust and digest as much as I possibly can. But the other reality of it is there's timetables and there's, there's, there's a long list, I guess, is the short part. And it's difficult to manage the list. If you don't mind getting tactical with us for, for a moment here, because people listening might be in that same boat. They might be, you know, hey, I'm sous chef getting offered an executive chef position or, you know, I'm I'm think I'm going from lead line cook to AM sous chef and I'm that that dynamic is going to be in play for me. The people who were previously my peers are now going to be the people that I'm in charge of leading and managing. And so when when that transition happens, if you had to give advice for someone in that position, were there books that were helpful? Were there like clear skills that you identified like I'm lacking in these and there are resources that I used to overcome them? Is it just a put in the reps kind of thing? What 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 was helpful for you? I mean, I, I was kind of mostly on the job, I think. And I think I benefited greatly from having uh, good managers, if you will, or good owners um, uh, who, who kind of taught me a lot. Um, I will say once you get to the management side, um, lists are very important. Make lots of lists, stay organized. Um, be very explicit in your instruction. Don't generalize. Uh, and I, that for me has changed my life. <laughs> uh, and I have this line that I, I, I tell everyone I hire as a manager or as I promote or, and put into a position of authority, if you will. And it, it sounds condescending at first. And people look at me very, very strangely when I say it. But I say, talk to people like they're in kindergarten. And they're like, what? Like, I can't do that. These are adults. I'm like, yeah, yeah, but I'm not saying you have to tap, you know, pat them on the head. And, and I'm, I'm, what I'm telling you is to give them instruction that leaves no details unturned. Because as soon as you are vague, it's just human nature. People will give you a vague reaction, a vague response, a, a vague result, if you will. So, uh, and then, and then measure things. You have to measure things and you have to, you have to create processes that allow you to see what end results are. And that's where the lists come in handy. Uh, you know what, you know, and I, I literally end every week with a list. I, I work through my list all week long and on Friday, the last hour of the day or whatever I deem is the <laughs> last hour yeah, of the week, yeah. I should say, I try and create a new one looking towards the next week. And, and those you, things you are just use pen and paper, pen and paper. You just use pen, pen and, and paper. paper. I, I mean, I'm, I'm, we, I, I, I have this conversation with younger employees here all the time. I'm a total weirdo. I mean, I think I'm on the cusp age-wise where PCs were very, very expensive for my family when they first were, were launching. So I, I like, you know, I wrote most of my college papers on a typewriter, you know, so I, but I have a, a tremendous appreciation for technology. But at the end of the day, like for me, there's, there hasn't been much of a substitute for, for pen and paper. And so I, I keep a legal pad in my bag and I write stuff down. And then I'll transpose a lot of that into some digital environment. Uh, I'm, you know, I'm, I live and die by an Outlook calendar. And so a lot of that stuff goes in there. Um, and I think uh, the advent of the smartphone has greatly improved my quality of life. But at the end of the day, I, don't, I still don't, haven't found a good substitute for pen and paper. There's a thing that I adopted too, which is writing the prep list digitally because I, I type faster than I can handwrite, but then I print the prep list and I keep that, if I'm doing a dinner, I keep the printed prep list there so that I can pen and paper, cross things off, do a little line and write a note. And, and 
yeah, there's something, there's like a bit, there's a, there's a funny product that has been kind of making the rounds in the kind of like technology YouTuber space, which is a product called analog. And it's a piece of paper that you can write your to-do list on. It's just so funny how things come full, full circle. circle. <laughs> it's yeah, like yeah. we, we rediscover these, you know, yeah, it's, tools or it's, practices. It's funny because my, I, I tend to host Thanksgiving in my house and I guess old habits die hard. And so I have this like pre-created Thanksgiving prep list and I like blue tape it to my wall in my house. And so like people come up and they're like, what is that? I'm like, with that, you don't eat. <laughs> That's the step one. That's the step one right there. And so it's like uh, to become this thing that like, I can't believe how long that list is. I'm like, yeah, you know, that's what it is. Uh, the one quick thread that you kind of mentioned was the explain it to me like uh, like a kindergartner. There's a there's a great subreddit which is explain it to me like I'm five and and very similar along those lines. But the the lesson for for folks to potentially take away from that is there's another thing in you know science circles that talks about if you can't explain an idea simply, you don't understand it. And maybe that could be a takeaway for folks if you can't give direction to people or describe what you're looking for in a very simple way. It might be a case of you don't actually understand that thing and 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 so like even though it, it seems like kind of a you know like you said potentially degrading or just kind of like funny first day moment with the ceo there's a lot of wisdom in that to be able to explain something in one line or in a, in a very simple way and it's interesting because you, you you know you, you touch upon something else and related to comprehension i think another key factor as uh as a manager at any level is you can't be afraid to tell people that you don't understand something like that is huge like to walk around and pretend and uh and blow smoke if you will is not going to help you you're not going to have anyone's faith or trust um so it's very very important that you're humble uh in in in, in many respects and but also be intelligent enough to know when you don't understand something that's essential you have to you have to put that in your toolbox you got to figure out a way to understand it or be smart enough to hire somebody <laughs> that can understand it for you, I guess is the other the other side of that. A huge piece of credit is often given to you for making the current JB Prince showroom in New York such a fun place for chefs to visit and shop and browse and just talk shop. It's still, to this day, one of my favorite shopping experiences ever. And I've been to knife shops in Japan and Australia and Copenhagen and all over. And and so huge kudos to, to just you and, and the team for, for building that and keeping that such a, giving that experience such an identity. Was that a no-brainer decision or how did you approach designing the shopping experience? Well, uh, well first of all, thank you. Um, I mean, I have a I have, uh, I've been fortunate enough to travel a little bit too. And one of the first questions I ask any of our vendor partners when we go abroad is, is there any place like JB Prince in any given town? And I, I try my hardest to visit uh, as many JB Prince-esque uh, shops as I can. And it may even be on the houseware side because um, I like to see and understand the experience. And, and it, you know, in, in our latest iteration of the showroom, um, I'm pretty sure we've been in it now for about three years or with a, with a little bit of a COVID interruption, but nevertheless, we're still there. Um, our old space was, it was fine, but for me, it felt a little bit like uh, visiting a dentist. You know, it was kind of, it was more of an afterthought. It became a space that was wedged in the midst of an office uh, and, and, a, and a warehouse, believe it or not. We warehoused everything on, uh, on 36 East 31st Street, like a bunch of madmen for, for many years, but nevertheless... And so when we finally exhausted that lease on those floors and we had an opportunity to move, 
I really had in my head that I wanted to create more of a welcoming experience and and kind of by extension um, and it hasn't happened yet we're still trying to uh, I guess put everything together was utilize the space in other ways and I, I think uh, we all know as we're as I'm on your podcast here now content is king uh, and we wanted it to be more inviting and give an opportunity or a platform for people to maybe create content in the space uh, visit create our own original content in the space, but also not kind of interrupt the shopping experience, if you will. Um, a big thing for me is in the old space, because it was much, much smaller, is we kind of put things where they fit rather than where they made sense. Uh, so we wanted to departmentally kind of organize things a lot better. I mean, we had this crazy thing where knives were in the center of the room and then sharpening stones were in the far corner just because you know, oh yeah, that's, you know, that's, that's a good place for them. You know, this is terrible, a terrible place for them and um, so on and so forth. And so we, you know, we, we managed with what we had and I think we, we, we won favor just simply because we've always had a really well curated mix of, of stuff, uh, of, of high-end kitchenware, uh, if you will. Uh, but as soon as we got a chance to kind of move and manipulate, and listen, um, in that space, we've, we've made mistakes. Uh, I've never laid out a space before. And so, if I get to do it again, I would change a lot. So it's, 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 it's never, there's a, a perfection is a myth, I guess, you know, you're never going to be fully satisfied, but, uh, yeah, I think that was a big part of it. I was trying to not only in a weird way, create a great shopping experience, but a little bit of a event space, if you will, uh, um, a place to where chefs could feel comfortable. And a lot of that comes from the fact that, over the years and just having conversations with visitors, a lot of people kind of use JB Prince as like a decompression space. You know, they like come here and they're like, I'm in an environment that I really enjoy. I'm still in kitchendom, if you will, but it's quiet. <laughs> no one's bothering me. I can think, um, you know, I'm getting inspiration for the next menu and, and, th and so on and so forth. So I kind of recognize that and wanted to hopefully play into it, give places for people to sit and just kind of feel comfortable because I know the kitchen is not always that. And the thing that strikes me, correct correct this number if I'm wrong, but I read that 90% plus of the business of JB Prince is online. And so it's almost like you guys take like a, a, a play, a, a book out of the high-end retail, like luxury brand book of, of, you know, the physical presence is actually like, more about be experiencing and and trying and having fun and like you said a little bit of that community element and kind of like there's a vibe in the space versus like oh it's all about buying or you know like I'm just gonna go shop here sure it, it's it's close to that so we we have we're an interesting outfit in the sense that I don't I don't think many people know about know us excuse me know this about us but uh, we have the B to B and we also we B to C so there are two elements. So it's not quite 90%. It's more like 40 some odd percent is online. And then there's another chunk that goes through distribution partners throughout the United States. Got it. Uh, but yes, um, the, the showroom is actually a relatively small percentage of the business. And the easiest way for me to surmise it is we've always seen it as a living and breathing catalog, because that's really how the company was started as a national catalog company. We mailed a, a lot of print material for many, many years. Uh, and that became 
the place to really showcase the catalog in 3D, if you will, and it gave people the ability to come in and take a peek and, and, and touch and feel. How do you, it's very much a, a curation element too of, you know, you, you, you don't see exactly the same brands that are in a, a William Sonoma or a, a Sir Latab. Like there, there's a element of choosing what to carry. How do you decide what to carry, what to say no to maybe is a better way of phrasing this question, but how do you, how do you choose? I'm, uh, it's, it, I think it's an excellent question. I, I mean, I, I have been fortunate that I've, I've worked in fine dining. I'm not current fine dining, obviously. I've been out of the game for many, many years. But that has, I think, won me a little respect. Um, and also, uh, it's given me a key to some, some kitchens and some minds that some others maybe wouldn't necessarily have access to. And it's, I think, knowing how to ask the right questions of the right people uh, you know, how, you know, obviously kitchens are filled with challenges that need solutions on a daily basis. So we pick a lot of brains is maybe the easiest way to say it. And we take a lot of notes. Um, and in combination with that, we try when we can to share those ideas with, uh, you know, with some of our vendor partners. Um, and, you know, you know, pre COVID we were on the road quite a bit. I would do, I would do two European sourcing trips a year if I could. Uh, and I try and visit, um, you know, cities that make sense for us to visit that are on trend for dining, um, and, and make friends along the way. And I, a lot of that inspiration really comes from that and, uh, and my gut and my gut and, and, and good advice from, uh, you know, other people who worked here. Uh, but that's the fun part of it. That's been always the most exciting part of the job for me. Um, I, I am CEO in name but I'm very nosy when it comes to product here. I, I, I put a lot of emphasis on it. If there's a product that is at JB Prince and, you know, don't, don't feel like you need to mention any, any names, but it's, it's not selling. It doesn't feel right. Maybe there, there have been some negative kind of like customer complaints on it. How do you go about kind of like deciding, Oh, we're not going to include this anymore or, or there's going to be, you know, cause that that's hard sometimes. And, and chefs can probably empathize with this sometimes with, you know, a, a purveyor decides that they're going to start giving you stuff and their availability is really shoddy or they're not so consistent anymore. Or there's some problems. How do you navigate that? You know, historically, I mean, we have tried really, really hard to listen closely. And, um, for me, it's kind of been a pretty simple three strikes rule, right? You know, when you, we'll have Got something it. and we'll we'll try it, and then we'll you know we'll get a bad batch maybe, and then we'll see what customer response is, and we'll try a replacement. And then after the third time, if people are still not happy, starkly we give people their money back and say, hey, this is not for you, and it's, ultimately if it's not for you, it's probably not for us. So we're going to get out of this product. Um, and you know, you get bad apples. It happens. You know, we we had a we had a. We had a wonderful piece of equipment, what I believe to be a wonderful piece of equipment that opened up an interesting avenue for us a couple of years ago. It was from Europe. It had a plug. Um, but many European machines are made in a different voltage. And so when they bring them here, they, they can tweak them. They can step them down to work with voltage. But it doesn't necessarily or it, I'm not saying it's dangerous, but it's not compatible with U.S. electric outlet standards always. And we had this very, very expensive machine that we bought a lot of, and uh, it worked for some people and not for others. And we had it. We had to eat a big 
chunk of these machines. It was Ouch. it was painful. Uh, Ouch. So, uh, you know, it happens. But again, you know, it, it it was a great learning experience. You know, you start to understand, you know, what can work versus what 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 doesn't work, and when it makes sense to take make a commitment to something and 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 versus not. And then we were able from that experience able to identify another vendor who was appropriate for our market and we wound up winning even bigger so it, it worked out in the end but it, it happens you know you make mistakes and uh no, nothing is perfect um so you know what do you what do you what are you going to do is i guess the short version of it you've mentioned before that chefs are going to increasingly find revenue streams outside of the dining room and so do you see projects like the Grey Kun Spoon as being one of those avenues? Because I'm not sure if you've seen that Chef Jenner Tomaska made a Quinell Spoon. Yeah. And, you know, is our, our chefs that are still kind of like in the game or have their own places, could, could gear be a potential opportunity for chefs going forward? How do you see I, that? It's a very interesting question. You know, the Grey Kun Spoon is a wonderful thing for us, but a lot of people don't understand. We have a 20-year head start. It took a long time to get it to where it was. A lot of marketing dollars, a lot of flexibility with a vendor. So I, I think it is a legitimate revenue stream, but there is a very specific course you have to take. And a lot of people don't always get this. Uh, there is something in our business that's called MOQ, minimum order quantity. And that alone can sometimes break you. You know, you, you just have to make a commitment to a product and like it or not, the segment that we, that we're in is, is wonderful, but it's, it's, it's finite. It's not huge. Um, you know, we're, you know, we're not William Sonoma selling to the masses. We're selling to fine dining restaurants and all you would really have to do is look at any of the, you know, the, the lists that are out there, understand how many of these kinds of places exist in a given major city and extrapolate from that how many cooks work in those places and how many shifts there are. And you quickly start to understand who the audience is. Uh, so do your homework. <laughs> do your homework. I think, I, think it's a, I think in the age of direct-to-consumer and Instagram, I think you can do some damage. Um, but uh, distribution is not easy. Um, you have to take a stock position. You have to store it. you got to get somebody to ship it for you. You have to be able to invoice it. You have to be able to answer uh, questions um, pretty quickly <laughs> nowadays, you know. Um, and and people, the court of public opinion is not friendly. Uh, people are vicious, and you you get knocked for silly things now. Like, yeah, they have everything. It's a wonderful place, but why is it so expensive? I don't. I don't. I never understood the relevance of that as a critique. I mean, you know, but it, it's a it's a reality. Uh, yeah, this this is great, but the corner of the box was crushed when I got it. So it's there. It's, it's, it's infinite. Um, uh, but yes, I, I, I love the ideas that are coming out. Uh, and I think it's wonderful that people are expanding. And if you need help, uh, email me <laughs> because I, I, I like to share projects with people and be collaborative. And, uh, I've, I've, I've helped a few people. I, I think, I think I like to think I've helped a few people launch some brands um, and I've benefited greatly from it and they've benefited greatly from it. So it's, it's a two way street. Uh, so that, well, you just brought up so many obstacles <laughs> that, that, <laughs> that potentially make it, it makes, it makes the juice not worth the squeeze at a certain point, or, or at least, you know, if, if you have a, a certain audience size or there's a partnership with a, you know, large retail brand that you could potentially facilitate to help, 
you know, get that MOQ up, that then then I think that there's a there's value there. But you know, I just see that there as as the world gets more connected and the ability to scale certain elements of building a brand through technology becomes easier. I think that there's a very real crossroads where you can stand and you could say, okay, do I want to do a cookbook or do I want to do a knife or do I want to do an apron or do I want to do a spoon or do I want to do a knife bag? I think that they're, they're just increasing avenues that people can go down to have additional revenue streams that could help their business. I, you know, I, I, I very much so agree with you that, that chefs need to have revenue streams outside of their, the dining room. Yeah, definitely. And I, and I, I think they, uh, the one thing I acutely understand is that from an industry perspective that we have probably one of the most amazing collections of not only intelligent, uh, forward thinking, but the grittiest group of people that you will ever come across in your entire life. And I, that grit, um, it's hard to define, but it's invaluable. It's invaluable. I mean, you know, if, if the last two years has taught us anything is restaurant people are tough, man tough group of people and they and they know how to overcome obstacles so yeah don't be afraid don't be afraid if uh um, challenge yourself to do new things find new ways to make money uh, it's very very important because at the end of the day the one thing that i know is not you can't argue with the math you can only make as much money as the seats that exist in your in your restaurant you could be the busiest place in town but 30 seats is 30 seats i love thinking about it in that way because it really trips people up to think about, oh, there's a ceiling here. And yeah. that can be a very sobering reminder that in, in all intents and purposes, hopefully prompts an exploration of, okay, what can we do outside of that? But yeah, do, run the math, folks. Like if, if, you, if you're looking at some space constraints or butts and seats constraints, they're, they're, it, it, it's worth digging into that. that you kind of mentioned the audience that you serve and the demographic of folks that JB Prince caters to. And I've had other folks on the show who own knife brands or cookware brands who expanded outside of the professional space because the, the what's, what it's called a total addressable market uh, to what Tim was kind of mentioning about doing some research on who your customers are and doing the math there. It's a order of magnitude or two going from professionals to home cooks so do you grapple with that kind of like or, or is it a case of oh well the the really engaged home cooks are just going to come find us and so we don't actually put that much credence towards them it, it it has come up more recently or more heavily in discussion simply as we're trying to figure out ways to kind of grow out of the covid doldrums um but there's just a reality to it there is a very different check average in the professional side versus the retail side. There is a very different expectation um, in terms of service. Um, so it's difficult. And so, you know, the, I guess the one thing any business that like ours that has some time under its belt, um, it's not impossible to change, but it's tough to abandon what has what is currently working and what has worked and adapt new simultaneously. So you have to make very, very strong, succinct commitments, um, and they're scary, and they're expensive. <laughs> so um, it's 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 an, it's an interesting challenge and an interesting conversation. But it it's it's very funny you bring it up because the 
the phone meeting I had this morning uh, was with a vendor of ours, and we were talking about that very thing. So it's not impossible, um, but it, it, it's just different. It's just it's just different. And like I, and to your point, I think uh, knowing your audience is very very important. And we have in the in the age of e-commerce, de facto gotten a lot of gourmet business, if you will. Uh, uh, but it's it. It's been challenging to specifically target it, I guess is the easiest way to say it. But I, I ha also have to say that there has been some wily players on the on the on the on our side of the fence that are now applying what were traditionally retail or con consumer related techniques into the into the professional side and they're winning and winning big. It's the easiest way to say it. Yeah. Fascinating. On the topic of gear I spoke with the YouTuber Alex French Guy Cooking on the podcast a few episodes back, oh, and we had a great back and forth about this concept of does gear matter? And I'm a self-described gearhead myself. You're clearly biased in, 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 in the business that you run, but how do you how do you unpack that statement? Does gear matter? I, I mean i I think it I think it's I think it's huge. I think I think um, I think we. And again, I'll, I'll take off my CEO hat here. And, <laughs> but how many places have you worked at in your life where the gear was deficient? It just, I mean, for lack of a better term, just sucked. And you were miserable because of it. So why would you not make a small investment into efficiency and quite honestly, keeping the people that work for you happier? And the happier they are, the easier your job of managing that crew of people is. The longer you retain them. I mean, I can't, if I had a dollar for every time I walked into a professional kitchen and 30% of the stuff didn't work, I wouldn't have to be the CEO here. I would, be collected, I would have collected a lot of dollars. I mean, it's <laughs> insane to me. And I think, you know, I think some of what we suffer from is an old guard style of thinking and an apprenticeship system. Um, I mean, I'm from the era of shift pay. I mean, labor, labor was cheaper. Um, but it's over, boys and girls. Buy things that make the job more efficient, keep people happier, less, you know, I mean, it, it's coming, you know, the, you know, the, the, the omelet robot exists, the burger flipper exists, the, uh, you know, so either work within, work within what's available or become a dinosaur really, really fast. And I, I'm, and that's pretty extreme, but, you know, I, I get people who debate with me about, you know, like purchasing a RoboCoop, like you need it, man. Like you can't, you can't have this guy, you know, chopping onions. It's, it does that doesn't make sense at, at fifteen bucks an hour. It does. It just it's it, it's this thing pays for itself in in a month and a half, in a month and a half. Um, so, but I I think I think it's coming, and I think more of it will come, and very very quickly. I think people are in for a big surprise over the next you know fourteen months about what's going to come out into the market. And what people are willing to spend money on versus what they weren't willing to spend money on just a few months ago. I've shared this in previous gear review videos that it's important to at least be thoughtful about your gear because if you just do the math on how many hours per quarter, year, month you spend with that knife in your hand or standing in front of the RoboCoop or what have you, it's like... Should you be miserable with that experience? <laughs> yeah. Should should you should you look down and just be like, oh, 
expletive. I have to <laughs> blank again. You yeah, know what yeah. I mean? Like, <laughs> what's 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 the point of that? But I, I think the problem that I have with it is when people. So I play tennis a lot, and there are certain people who will get the new pair of shoes or the new racket and think that that makes them a better tennis player. In those situations, the gear the gear doesn't matter. Sure. There are certain other deficiencies that you that you have that you're trying to compensate for, but but yeah, I think I think you and I can agree that there there's there's a there's a kind of like work satisfaction or kind of like a a enjoyment of the craft that comes when you're working with nice tools and yeah. gear. Agreed, agreed. And and this is this is my number one peeve, young cooks. Please stop coming to the showroom with brand new designer clothes on and then complain to me about the cost of a tweezer. (laughs) I'm all for looking good. I'm all for being happy and self-care. But when you have, uh, in some cases, uh, shoes in excess of $300 on that I'm completely aware of what you paid for them and you argue with me about a a 3% increase on something, I have a a small problem with it. Uh, that's so funny, man. So if you see me in the showroom, you can corner me and 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 get at me yep. about it. But that's 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 my that's my P for for twenty one twenty two. That's awesome. That's awesome. You you touched on a a point, and and I read this amazing quote that you shared uh, on, on this topic, and it's quote: "Old school chefs like to see cooks suffer," and and you basically share that you know. These chefs make make these people do new stuff that they had to do in the past, even though it's not needed anymore. And there are tools for that. Like the, there's a Robocoop that exists. Like, do you need to stand over that cutting board and chop these onions by hand? Is the customer actually going to end up noticing the difference in this kind of execution? Why why is that so common in our industry? Why why has it been so difficult for us to move past that? You know, I and I'm just speaking for myself here, and maybe other people would chime in, but I started. A little bit later than most. I was a I was an aspiring school teacher first, and then went into the kitchens. And one of the things I quickly noticed is, is that you know kitchens were you know had a kind of a fraternity mentality. There was a little bit of a hazing that was going on there. But I really think this is where things, or at least in my experience, where things are, guys start young in the kitchen, right? And a lot of the people that we were trained by were young European chefs, right? I mean, um, you know. I'm talking about guys who managed me were two, three years older than me, uh, but already had 10 years under their belt, right? They had this rich tradition of apprenticeship wherever they came from. And I just think they never had enough interaction with adults. And so they, they just don't, you're doing it this way because that's what this guy told me to do. So that's what you have to do and deal with it. And it was, I couldn't really... It didn't sink in well for me. It was one of the hardest things for me to adjust to as a professional. It's quite honestly one of the things that drove me out of the kitchen. It was maddening to me. I'm like, we are all adults here, right? We can have a conversation about this and figure out a more effective way to get this done, even if it's not with a tool or a machine. Just, this is stupid. (laughs) I mean, this is really the worst way we could be possibly doing this. And two or three simple tweaks would make this much easier for all parties involved. Uh, and so I think it's maturity. I think there's a maturity issue uh, with some of it. Now, I also think now there has been a huge shift, a huge shift. You know, there is, uh, and I, I and just in talking to people, again, not from firsthand experience because I'm not behind the stove anymore, um, just from firsthand experience, people have definitely changed their attitude. And I think a lot of guys felt the way I felt and just 
were grittier than I was and sweated it out and were able to make, make something happen that I didn't believe would ever happen, I guess is the, is the truth of it. Is there a, a quote, piece of advice, thing that you've potentially heard or seen that, because I would feel this, right? Like when, when I would, because I got brought up in those same environments with, with yelling and screaming and, oh, because I told you so, and that's just how we do it. And just very, very lackluster kind of like um, explorations or understandings of why systems are the way that they are or why, why we use certain methods or whatever. And I would feel it the, the, when, I, when I got my first management position and one of my line cooks fucked up for the first time. I felt it bubbling up the kind of like scream at this person, discipline them in the same way that you were disciplined. And I had to physically like step into my programming and like stop that and, and just be like, nope, you're going to be, you're going to break the cycle and it's going to, it's going to stop here and you're going to approach this from a different way. And, and what's so hard about that is that you have to think about how am I going to fix this problem, discipline this person, make this a teaching moment, you know, wh whatever that needs to turn into. But it's very much so a cycle breaking process that because otherwise, if you need to discipline somebody, you're going to discipline someone the same way that you were disciplined. Sure. Like that's, that's like the, have you found resources that are helpful there or, or, or any advice <laughs> I, that you can share with people? Cause <laughs> I mean, again, I think I think it's a little bit more difficult, especially what I'm about to say, because you're in the heat of the moment and there's an intensity that exists in professional kitchens that doesn't exist in office environments for sure. But I've kind of conditioned myself or trained myself to when I get some you know, bad news or see something that is not to my liking, I try and give myself 24 hours. I give myself the time to really, really digest it, look at it, uh, try and understand the other person's perspective, and then offer a more constructive way to correct it. Um, is it always that way? No, but I've, it, 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 it's helped me greatly, especially uh, with emails. <laughs> I, I, I was, as a younger person in my career here, would kind of shoot from the hip on responses and, and you know, with emails and, uh, and, and sometimes, you know, uh, blew things up that didn't need to be, you know, blew things out of proportion that didn't need to be. Um, so I think, I think that's important to give yourself time to understand the complexities of the situation, if you can, if time affords it, um, and, and never, never really speak from a position of anger because that never, never really, really helps at all. Um, I, I had a chef that I worked for that had a really interesting, it's playing off of this structure that you're mentioning here where he would sometimes have moments in service where it would be quite explosive or, or emotional or, or high volume, maybe is what you'll, you'll call it. And he got to this place where after a certain amount of time and after he eventually got to take a step outside of that into more of an owner role than the kind of like chef to cuisine, you know, chef owner sure. kind, of, kind of role, he would, if someone got just completely reamed during service, he would make it a point after everybody was kind of like cleaned down to take that person into the private dining room for like 10, 15 minutes and just have a conversation about like what happened and just kind of have the same conversation again, but at a different tone maybe, or, or, you know, like the, the vibe was different and, and it could be a little bit more calm or, or, or 
so the the volume could be not as, as as loud. And I don't think I've shared that on the show before, but you know, for for people who are like, "Oh, well, you know, this Tim guy is saying that I need to wait 24 hours. I can't do that." You know, maybe there is an opportunity just several hours later, several minutes later, just to kind of like when things are a little bit sure. Uh, I, I, not as I guess I guess for me the 24-hour period is important cuz I'm I'm I want to be constructive, I guess is the really the point. I don't want to just yell for the sake of yelling or be angry for the sake of being angry. There, there, there has to be some kind of corrective action in that. And it sounds like a bunch of corporate you know, BS, but there is something to it. And again, it goes back to what we really started this with. If you're not able to explain to people things in its simplest form, this whole, you know, this... We, 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 I joke about it with other people who have been line cooks here before, you know, that common figure it out. Like, no, man, that's not cool. You can't tell people figure it out. This, that's not how it works. Like you have to, you have to, you have to be a mentor and you have to share your base of knowledge and help people because you're just going to create this really toxic environment. And, uh, you know, you're in a room with people that are, that have knives in their hand. It's not smart. It's not smart. Be, be cool and, and and try and help people. I'm I'm not saying it. I don't get angry. I mean, uh, uh, we're all human. And you're gonna you're gonna get angry from time to time. But yet, at the end of the day, if you you still need to offer people, uh, you know, positive solutions to why you've been gotten angry. I guess is the easiest way to say it. To take it back to customer service and maybe how you think about it now, how do you define great customer service? <clears throat> That's a good one. Um, I, you know, for us here at, at Prince, it's the big element for us is just the fact that we actually are interacting. I, I think a lot of customer service now is pre-canned answers and some kind of, you know, AI environment. Um, you know, we still use the phone. Uh, we do email, send a lot of emails. Um, but we, we get this often, like, we make mistakes, you know, inventory is, is not infallible and sometimes we're out of things and we pick up the phone and say, hey, by the way, we're really sorry, but what we said we have, we don't really have. Um, this is when it'll be here, it won't be here. And I know that sounds super rudimentary, but in this day and age, people are like, you actually called me to tell me you don't have something in stock? We're like, yeah, yeah, it's, it's, uh, we understand this is, a, this is a pressing business and everybody orders things, you know, two days after they're supposed to, so... We want to, we want to make sure we want to make sure you're prepared for the worst case scenario, you know. And, and there's sometimes, you know, we, we can't we can't help people, uh, but being able to you know openly communicate in real time I think is important. Uh, being able to offer uh, substitutions I think is huge. Uh, that's a big thing for us, uh, and uh, I hope there's people who are listening who've experienced this. In, in machines that we think are vital to operations, we try and keep loaners on hand. And we say, hey, we know yours is broken, but we have this one for you. We're going to ask for your credit card, but as soon as you bring it back, you get all your money back and you get your fixed machine or your brand new machine, or you figure it out, another solution. But in the interim, this is what we've got for you. And in, in my time, I've, I've hand-delivered vacuum pack machines, Paco jets, sous vide circulators, uh, so um, it's a little bit more difficult for us now because we've split the business a little bit. But when we can, uh, we will still do that kind of a thing. And I think those small touches like that are, they're huge. They're huge. Um, 
and it's that open line of communication with your with your customers. Um, available stock is another big part of customer service. I think a lot of people in our industry tend to put up a picture of things and say, "Oh yeah, I get that for you." It'd be two weeks. Ninety-eight uh, percent of what we show is in our warehouse. It's big, big cash commitment for us, but a big customer service piece for us also, right? Because people get things when they want. Um, and I have to, I have to correct that number. In COVID times, and now we're not at ninety-eight percent fulfillment. It's been a little hairy, but traditionally that's what we aim for, um, which is not easy, not easy. But we do, we do it when we can. There's almost like these pillars of transparency domain expertise maybe is is what I'll call it like you actually know what it's like to be an an industry person and and potentially back to my it it kind of answers my my other question I had about like why not expand into doing more home cook related marketing or carrying the products or 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 what have you is because you guys are so good at at, at working with the the industry so so why not just be the best in that category yeah i mean it's i i think i think You've put it more eloquently than I ever have, I guess. I, I, and maybe that's buried somewhere in the back of my head. But yeah, that's really, I think, a lot of it. Um, we, you know, there's been attempts. You know, we've tried to do some things and dabble with some consumerist things, um, and not done so well. I guess is the easiest way to say it. Uh, and I, I think it. Uh, so we 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 drive in the lane that is safest for us for now. Uh, that's the easiest way to say it. You mentioned the time that you've been working with the company and, you know, I, I came into the industry in 2009, 2010-ish timeframe and there's a lot of stuff that's come and gone, especially as we kind of like lived through the modernist cuisine, molecular gastronomy kind of movement. Have there been, I, I have two questions. The first one is, have there been things that you saw maybe in 2012, 2011, 2008 that you thought at the time you were like, oh, this is going to be big and it ended up flopping? Uh, that's a good question. Man, my memory is not serving me well today. I can't think of anything that extreme, I guess. Um, and I guess less in fine dining and maybe more in some other elements and places that we didn't, we didn't really, uh, we don't play as big a role in. And I guess, and like I said, I'm not saying that we're perfect in our selection or, you know, we know all the trends. Um, but I, I can't identify anything that quickly, but I'll keep it in the back of my head. If something, I'll yeah, definitely, yeah, I, I'll, if something comes, pops in there, I'll, I'll let you know. I mean, I can give some a couple examples if it helps prompt some things. Yeah, yeah, so, do, so, it. Let's uh, do it. The the when Grant, Grant Atkins was really big on the anti griddle for a while, where it was like, oh, it's going to be this thing that you can pour things on and it's going to freeze super fast. And then I think another one was uh, the whole spherification piece, where everybody was like, oh, there, there's going to be an element of spherification on almost every single menu going forward because it's such a customer wow kind of thing but it got to this place where you experienced it enough times and sometimes you know just because you can nail the texture or the the mouth experience doesn't mean the flavor of the thing is going to be good and so that kind of fell off the the whole thing and then and then um the other one that comes to mind for me that was kind of like a trend that i i would argue fell off was this idea of introducing other sensory 
things into it and and and, and the more into a dish and the, and the biggest example of this was Heston Blumenthal's Sound of the Sea dish sure. where he would have an iPod in a conch shell and you would put headphones into your ears and you would eat a seafood dish with the sound of waves crashing and seagulls playing in your ears and I think that has also just completely kind of kind of flubbed but th- those are a couple examples that come to mind for me yeah I, yeah I... Interesting. So, you know, in, in our particular case, we did exceptionally well with the anti-griddle. It went away, I think, for, other, for other reasons. Uh, it was For it. our customer base, it, it worked. Um, and I, I think it had a lot of potential. I think it was, the reality of it is it was very expensive to manufacture. And the, the, the company who launched the idea was acquired by another company and they, they killed it is the easiest way to say it. So it wasn't, I think, I, I think it had potential. And I think, uh, um, I think it took a certain kind of vision like Grant to, to come up with that kind of a thing. But it, um, so it, for us, it wasn't a, it wasn't a bust. It was, it was, a, it was a good product. So um, interesting. Um, and again, but we're unique, you know what I mean? We're, we're, yeah. we're a different, yeah, yeah. we're different. I think at its peak, I mean, uh, and I'll share this cause it doesn't exist anymore. We, we were probably selling like three and a half of those a month. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, and, uh, and when 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 I say when I say rise to popularity or uh, you know flopped, I'm I'm comparing it to like I did not think immersion circulators or cooking sous vide uh, that would have been one of my first things that I would have told you is like nope, that's not going to work. Like like in no way is the average you know housewife going to have a circulator in their home like it's just it's it's too professional like it's a professional thing you need a vacuum sealer i mean these were back in the day with the big clunky poly science things and all that it took was a couple of you know ingenious engineers to kind of slim it down and sync it up with an app and and uh, and all of a sudden it's it's this household staple now and so that that's more what i was you know potentially alluding to i'll add a little bit to that probably sous vide would be even bigger if there wasn't as many potential health risks on the professional side, but that, right. that's a whole nother podcast. Um, totally. Um, but yeah, so I, I, you know, and, and the sensory thing, you know, uh, I lived through that. I ate at the fat duck. And so I, <laughs> I get it. I mean, I, I thought it was, I thought it was fine. You know what I mean? I, I, I just think, but that if, if you, if you ever visit the fat duck or have the opportunity, the whole dining experience there is immersive, right? From, and I don't want to spoil it from anybody, but I don't. I don't even know if many people even pick up on it. But they have mood lighting while you eat. You know, as you're eating through the courses, the lighting above you changes, and uh, and so it's it's next level. And you know, and, and so that to me is so on the fringe of anything of what anyone's doing or, or challenging people's experience to a point that uh, it, it, it's 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 kind of almost insane. I mean, they're they're. They've they've left no detail unturned there. It's a it's a it's a crazy place to visit, and I, I had I had a key to the back door, so I saw it from. It was it, I, when I ate there. I, I got arrived and at the restaurant at three o'clock and left at two in the morning. So I literally wow. saw the pre meal prep, and I was like, I was like, is that guy really hand rolling all of those? You know, it's like no way. You know, it was like so. I was totally taken aback, and so it, I think that was a, a very fascinating experience. Um, yeah. So, but, but for us, you know, as much as we try to be on the bleeding edge and, and forward thinking, 
I think a lot of what we sell is pretty core and fundamental too. At the end of the day, we're selling you know a lot of pots and pans, a lot of knives. So, uh, but we have you know we oh I know one that now it's come to me, and I I don't want to be uh, the gastrovac. Do you remember the gastrovac? No. So this was this machine that you were. It was basically it had a heating element and a vacuum pump. So you were supposed to be able to modify the atmosphere that you were cooking in and simultaneously um, cook. So people was like, oh, you can low temperature fry in this. I was like, low Got temperature it. fry? Like, and so it gets a little geeky inside because obviously people, you know, temperature is also affected by pressure. Uh, is the easiest way for me to explain pressure, it. Yeah, yeah, pressure cooker. Yeah, pressure cooker on steroids. Maybe. Exactly. So that is probably, and that's going back, man. This is that's that came out. That's kind of out of the Elbow Lee school, probably like two thousand one ish. And uh, that one, we completely fell on our face with that one. But <laughs> right next to it, alongside of it, uh, we also had the Roner, which was one of the first. Uh, circulators to be promoted into the culinary space um which we you know we crushed it with until polyscience came along and, and philip preston and the boys worked with grant and they figured out a way and wiley and figured out a way uh, and matthias Murgis and figured out a way to do all that um here and then and and then ultimately grew it into a very very nice business which has since been sold to breville so that that's if any of you is out there looking for an anti-griddle Called Breville, they're the ones who said no more anti-griddles. Um, so, but I, I get it. It was you know I think it was a numbers game for them. It was difficult for them to produce and keep up with. I promised I had two questions there, and the second one was: Are there things you mentioned uh, uh, more capable robotic tools? Um, are there things that are just kind of like bubbling or? What's that quote? The, the future is here. It's just not evenly distributed yet. Yeah, and, and so are there things that you've seen that you can potentially forecast like, oh, we're actually we're actually looking into this quite a bit or, or, or I can see this, you know, maybe we don't have a hand in this yet, but I, I think there's, there's a lot of potential here. Uh, any trends that are happening that you're keeping your eye on? Yeah, I mean, there's one and I almost hate to say it out loud because uh, it's 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 probably about five years new at this point and it's very very expensive and it's not for every operation but water jetting it's insane Explain. insane Explain. insane um there are or there is a tool in the market or a company in the market uh i their name escapes me else i would say it out loud and you could easily look it up on on youtube uh or google but in essence there is a tool that exists out there that will cut on the X and Y axis. Uh, and you can basically take a gigantic sheet of something, uh, plot something on a computer and get it to cut. So if I wanted to make a cake in the shape of Texas, I could do it. If wow. Uh, and a lot of them fast. And I, I know of one hotel in a, in, a, in, a, in a large volume hotel who's invested in one of these and the chef there said to me, he goes, before this machine, we had two people who portioned cakes on Tuesday. And that's what they did all day long. They portioned cakes. And the waste was tremendous. He goes, we've made, and now, this is, at the time I asked this question, it's probably about three years ago, just so you guys understand, it was a, a six-figure investment, big, big money. Um, 
but he says, we now do it in three hours. <laughs> and there's no waste, zero waste, zero waste. So, I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm like firing on all cylinders right now because I'm thinking about portioning your example. I'm yeah. thinking about, you know, butcher shops that have the bandsaw. Like, could this replace the bandsaw in a lot of places? The, the, the thing of it is, is that it's not only the initial investment that's expensive, it's the maintenance. So uh, you need to have almost somebody who has, uh, I, 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 I'm, I'm maybe going out on a limb here, but some program experience experience or you know some CAD experience if you will like computer-aided design experience to help you with layout but like anything else they'll probably figure out 500 templates that they can sell you and uh, you know here's the form factor that you got to work in and there'll be you know 0.01% waste in this form factor 3% waste in this form factor and it, it you know it'll be it will it will kill the the ring mold business fascinating is what it would ultimately do and so if you're a production bakery and you don't know about this piece of equipment uh, i hope you never find it no uh <laughs> you should <laughs> you should consider looking into it but again i think that's for a place where like i said you're employing people that are just doing these menial singular tasks and you know and in this hotel operation i'm talking about you know this is union labor now cutting cakes for a whole a whole a whole day tasks that don't actually benefit from human involvement exactly. that's the thing that i'm trying like every time anybody brings up robotic automation or like oh they're, they're gonna they're, they're coming for our jobs they're gonna replace us it's like does that piece of cake benefit from the human involvement and i would argue it doesn't and so from that sense it's kind of like do you actually want to spend like you're saying two full-time two two date two tuesdays <laughs> you know like two people's worth of tuesdays portioning cake like is is that it's it's so interesting to me man yeah and then you know and and you're in essence increasing your margins right because there's literally he's you know he says you, you got to trim everything all these edges they that doesn't nothing you can do with that uh i mean i mean you i guess you could throw them in a bag and try and sell them curbside but ultimately that's not going to fly that's not the mandate right you're trying to do this very polished finished you know plated dessert-esque kind of an item um, and so that those scraps have no value for you and you just used ingredients and time to throw something in the garbage. So yeah, it's, it's going to be huge. It's going to be huge. Last question for you before we go into some rapid fire ones and then, and then we'll wrap things up here. How do you experience restaurants now? I like you have so much knowledge of like, do, do you get dishes and you're like, Oh, I wonder what they used to, what piece of equipment they used to make this. And do you creep back in the kitchen and try to see, you know, yeah. what's going on? How do you experience restaurants? Now? I mean, if I'm super curious, I'll definitely ask to see, I honestly, everybody out there and please don't be insulted. I try to eat anonymously. I, 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 I respect what everyone is doing. I don't want anything for free guys. You guys work very, very hard. Just because I work in the industry doesn't entitle me to anything but a high five. And if I get access to your kitchen at the end of the meal, um, that's more than enough for me. Um, so I'll start with that. So I, I generally will, if I see something that's pretty fascinating, uh, try and bend people's ears. And the, and the other element to that is I don't like to eat critically. I just want to eat. <laughs> I, I'm not a critic. Uh, everybody, it's, it's, you know, it's like ballroom dancing. It's a... Uh, it's subjective. You like what you like, and I like what I like, and that's that's just that's just how it is. Um, I don't I don't I know they they drive a lot of our market, but I don't care what the critics have to say. I'll eat just about anywhere and try just about most anything. 
so yeah, that's, you know, that's kind of, um, my thing, but I, I don't eat out as much as I'd like is the other side of it. You know, I'm kind of, a like, uh, like I mentioned to you, I guess, you know, off camera before I'm, I go home and I want to hang out with my 12 year old and I take care of my dad. So I, I don't be insulted if I'm not showing, I'm not showing up to anybody's <laughs> place is, is, is the reality of it. Um, but my, my 12 year old is becoming a little bit of a foodie. So we'll, we'll probably grow into venturing out a little bit more, especially post COVID. Um, the, the one thing I, I will say is that I've, I've grown dislike is strong, but I, I think, uh, the bigger tasting menus are less appealing to me as I've gotten older and, 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 uh, in the game, if you will. Um, just I, too much food, too much variety, too long. What what's... I, I think, um, I think too long and I've got it. And I think, uh, I think some of them are drawn out a little bit. Uh, and it is, is that there's the time factor. Um, and there's, I think a little bit of a palate fatigue that kind of starts to happen, you know, it's, uh, and I think it's important that it, it's balanced, I guess is the point. And I'm, it's not to say that I'm not thoroughly impressed by the execution. Cause I know it's freaking hard to do that and time it and do it well. And I have the utmost respect for it. Um, and I, I like to experience as much as I can when I can, but I'll come back. I'd rather come back is I guess is the reality of it and have, and have a more, uh, enjoyable experience multiple times rather than you try and show me every trick the first time maybe that's the easiest way to say it is it is let's do let's do some rapid fires these don't have to be rapid fire answers but they are going to be you know semi semi rapid uh from from me it's you know let's call it a saturday morning or maybe your first day off of work and you kind of you know wander into the kitchen and you're going to make eggs for yourself for breakfast how do you make those eggs or maybe for your for your 12 year old um, one of two ways we, you know, f- fried over white rice, uh, or, uh, some kind of an omelet, which usually consists of an herb and cheese. What's one thing that you've changed your mind on in recent memory? Uh, I'm stumped. I'm stumped. Um, in recent memory, something I've really, I, I, I feel, I feel like I sound like I don't have any convictions now. Um, <laughs> Can I come back to that? Something I've yeah, of course, of course, of course, of course. Is there a book that's been particularly impactful for your career? This can be about cooking. This can be about being a CEO. This can be about parenting. This, you know, what, what, whatever. Is there a book that you that you maybe gift often? Might be a better question. Uh, one that I tell people to often read is Outliers, Malcolm Gladwell. And I know that's a little long in the tooth now. It's been out for a long, long time. But I think there is. I think it puts things in perspective well for at least for me because it's it's not only about ability and experience it's about timing which I think a lot of people often discount so I, I like that one a lot um, and most recently uh, Jeff Cordina's book uh, the Red Red Zeppi one uh, Road Tripping I can't I'm gonna mess this title up but I think you know which one I'm talking about I really yeah, enjoyed it I liked I liked his writing style and I thought it was a fascinating insight into one of the recent, I guess, you know, for culinary geniuses, if you will. Is there something that, you know, doesn't quite get shared all that publicly, but if I had to ask you to like get on stage and give a talk about blank, you could just do it at the drop of a hat. Like, like, are there any kind of like weird hobbies or esoteric interests that you have that people might not quite know about in Uh, the public space? I'm a bowling geek. 
Whoa. <laughs> Where did that come from? When I first met my wife, she was an avid bowler. Uh, and so she kind of taught me how to bowl. And then I stopped for, you know, we had a son, uh, my 12 year old son, and we stopped. And then during COVID, she kind of got urged to go back. Um, and she's, she's went back and then my youngest son kind of gotten into it. So now I've grown back into it now. So I'm, I'm a born again bowling geek. Maybe it's the easiest way to say it, but there was a point in my life where I was in a bowling alley at least three nights a week. And, uh, did you do it as part of a league or just, just, yeah, yeah, I'm, wife a, would go? I, I'm okay. a league bowler. Yeah. I'm a league bowler. Fascinating. Yeah, yeah. So Fascinating. I, I, I had, a, I actually had, um, it's fresh in my mind because I came off like one of my best weekends ever bowling. So I'm, I'm a 189, typically 189 house average bowler. I bowled over this weekend and I averaged a 218 over eight games for the weekend. So I'm, 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 Damn. I'm feeling good. <laughs> I'm feeling That's good. Amazing. <laughs> yeah. That's amazing. That's uh, amazing. Yeah. Um, so yeah. You, you, you somehow get a call right after this interview that you've just won an all expenses paid trip to eat at your dream restaurant. And when you get there, there's someone you've always wanted to speak with waiting to have dinner with you. What is that restaurant and who is that person? I, it, this, this is going to be completely embarrassing, but uh, a yakitori restaurant that I stumbled upon in Tokyo that I can't remember the name of. I don't, I don't even know the name of. I'll, I'll, there's a little background story to it. but um, And I probably would want to have uh, dinner with uh, Barack Obama. He is, I think, the most frequent person that people say in response to that question. That's interesting. I, and yeah. it's fascinating. Yeah. Yeah. I, I th- you know, I think, uh, I think he spoke very, and it, it, it has nothing to do with political affiliation. Uh, it just has to right. do with the fact that I felt like he had, he always had something interesting to say. And I, it would be very fascinating for me to, you know, like you're doing to me, pose some questions at him and, and understand, try and intimately understand some of those responses. So, so, uh, so yeah, he's, 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 I mean, there's probably more, there's probably more, uh, you know, if I spoke better French, I might say Paul Bocuse, uh, you know, but, uh, if I spoke any French, maybe that's a better way of saying it. Um, totally, totally. <laughs> so yeah. Is there a technique that you're still intimidated by in the kitchen. I know that you said that you've you've taken a step back from the stove, but is there something that you look at and you're like, oh, oh I, yeah, I, I mean, still don't know how to do I am, that. I'm I'm generally the boy with with two left feet when it comes to any pastry techniques. I, I have very very difficult time. I just uh, I don't know if it's patience. I don't know if it's uh, my big sausage fingers. I haven't quite figured it out. But I've <laughs> I've, I've I challenged myself uh this fall to to temper chocolate and i actually did it so i'm I'm super pleased to say that but it took a long <laughs> it was a long arduous road for me um it took a lot of tries and a lot of it was again driven i keep mentioning my 12 year old alberto uh it was driven by him and he's kind of fascinated with cooking and he wanted to do some things i'm like yeah but to do that we have to temper chocolate he's like well then why don't we just temper chocolate i'm like oh, okay all right hot shot let's see what we can do so um, he's kind of been my inspiration in that respect, and he's because he's shown a great interest in uh, some some culinary things. Uh, he's taking a little bit of a step back now because he's again he's a bowling geek too. Um, but uh, yeah, I think I think I, I think confectionery maybe if you wanted a more general a general term. I'm going to circle back before before I do my last question. I'm going to circle back if there's something that's potentially popped up in your mind that you potentially have changed your mind on in recent memory. This can be, you know, since the pandemic happened, this can be, 
you know, uh, uh, for New York as a city, maybe, or, or, um, yeah, I mean, I mean, this might sound, it's not really related to food, but I think the thing I've really changed my mind about in recent times is that I, I truly believed in, uh, uh, that we were in a, we were in a space where the measure of people was going to be more related to their socioeconomic status than the color of their skin or their sexual orientation or their uh, their gender. And recently, that's been disproven for me. So I was maybe being overly optimistic, uh, maybe in the New York bubble for too long. But I think that's probably the one major thing that has, I mean, shocked is maybe a strong word, but it is, has been impactful in my life and made me think about things a little bit differently and how I approach situations and approach people. But that, that one is, uh, has really been, uh, maybe struggle is a strong word, but I've been super contemplative about how that's all unfolded in recent times. I love that. Last question for you, Tim. Nate, what, what do you think chefs can be doing better to help the next generation? I think I think they have to be willing to I, I think we work in a business that is filled with mentors, right? If if someone's not taking you under your wing and taking you to the next level, you're not gonna make it anywhere behind the stove. Uh, but I also think that they have to help younger cooks understand that life doesn't stop at the stove. Um, there is tr- tremendous opportunity in food service. Uh, it's a huge industry generates billions and billions of dollars in the United States alone and that you have to sometimes get out of your comfort zone and uh, and, and look at different avenues and approach different things and and don't feel like uh, oh I went to culinary school so I have to cook or I've been doing this for 10 years and this is you, you like I said greedy group of people you'll you'll if you really want to do something you'll figure it out and and uh, if you can survive in a fine dining kitchen for a year you can do anything. It's my simple way of it. And, and I think it's important for the powers that be to be able to impart that, that, that vibe or that good feeling for younger chefs. Tim, you've been so generous with your time. Is there anything that we didn't get a chance to bring up or, or you know, a potential thread that we left unpulled that you want to, that you want to jam on? Oh, uh, not really. I, I, I think I, I liked, uh, I've only done a handful of these in my life, but I, I like to end them with, uh, with a thank you. Uh, I, I, I don't have enough opportunities to be any one place or see enough people to thank all you guys. I, I, I owe, uh, I owe so much to this, uh, this business. I feel like it's been so, so good to me. Uh, and I try very, very hard to be good to it. Um, and I, I, if, I don't. I don't really have enough words to express how uh, exciting this ride has been. Um, like I said, it's been about twenty-four years for me now. I hope I get another hundred out of it if I can. You know, it's uh, so if if I can end that on that uh, on that note, that that's a lot for me. That's a lot for me. Well, Tim, I'm I'm not just speaking for myself, but I I, I hope I'm speaking for a lot of other industry professionals when I say that what you guys do for us as an industry resource is invaluable. And again, I've been a loyal customer for, it's going to be 13 years next year, something, something to that effect. And, and it's been a, a joy to be able to see how you have 
taken the company from different locations and different <laughs> chapters in the industry and through a pandemic and just just all of it. And so so the the thanks goes right back at you. And uh, again, I, I know that you don't do a lot of these, so so I I'm just grateful that you were willing to take the time. And if if people want to uh, either get in touch with you and ask some questions or check out JB Prince, where do you, where do you want to send them? We'll have links in the show notes to these. But... Oh um, yeah, I mean I. I'm on social, uh, personally on social as uh, uh, T-H-E-M-U-S-S-I-G, the Musig at Instagram.com. And I'm pretty active on there and happy to answer messages in that format. Uh, It's probably the easiest because it's, you know, my phone is never far away. Um, I have, uh, and if, if, you know, the questions are business related, I'll, I'll forward you my email address right in there. And, but that's, or even the JB Prince company one. And if you ask for me uh, in there, it'll, it'll get to me. Um, I look at it often. Um, or you could even send a general email through the, uh, through the, uh, customer service channels. All those get to me. Uh, I, it sounds crazy, but, um, I answer customer service emails every once in a while. So <laughs> you, you may, you may hear from me. Uh, you, you can take the Tim out of customer service, but you can't take the customer <laughs> yeah, exactly. service out of Tim. <laughs> yeah, that's a good I way of putting it. it. Yeah. Um, thanks again, Tim. Thank uh, you. Thank you. It. Excellent. Have a good one. I really loved talking with Tim. He's such a thoughtful and empathetic CEO, and it's just the type of person that you want to see in a company like JB Prince, who is so mission-focused and niched down and, and has a focus and a real passion for the customers that they serve. I think that there's a common sentiment that, you know, sh- chefs work really hard, and 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 so we're just going to, you know, kind of make, make things easy for them. But there, there, there's sometimes a sense of just wanting to feel heard and understood that Tim's experience in having spent time in professional kitchens really just makes him a juggernaut of of his role at that company. And I'd highly suggest that you folks check out JB Prince. There, there, there's no kickback that I'm getting from recommending them. It's just a relationship and a loyalty that I've kind of built over time to JB Prince for, for having the availability and, again, the customer service that Tim just speaks so much of and, and values so much. And so links, as always, uh, are, are down in the description. Heads up, just for folks listening, if you haven't been able to find episodes of the Repertoire podcast, there was a boop, I'm going to call it, on Spotify's end, where when we made the transition from the Emulsion podcast to the Repertoire podcast, the links for how Spotify shows searches for the Repertoire podcast have kind of been goofed up. And simultaneously, a lot of our reviews ended up kind of disappearing on on Spotify. The good thing is, because Spotify just kind of rolled out reviews, it makes it a little bit easier for me to make this request to you if you listen to the Emulsion Podcast or previously listened to the Emulsion Podcast, now the Repertoire Podcast on Spotify. You might have to go in and re-find it. You might have to re-subscribe. You might have to re-download old episodes. But everything's there. The whole back catalog, nothing has been kind of goofed up. It's just if you want to make sure that it's the more people that rate it, the more it will show up in search rankings because people know that when they're searching for the repertoire podcast, this is exactly what shows up. And so that's a quick call to action from me. If you're able to go into Spotify and make sure that you search, find the exact same channel art that you're probably listening to this on now and post that, that would uh, post a review again. I hate that I'm asking you twice if you've already done this, but that would really, really help. 
Last friendly reminder, if you own a small business and you want to get three months of zero commissions on DoorDash and bring delivery to your existing base of customers and potentially grow that base with DoorDash's audience that they have in the app, you can check out the link in the description or you can go to justincona.com slash DoorDash and simultaneously... For listeners of the Repertoire podcast, Yelp is offering $100 Visa gift cards to the first 10 business owners that sign up and get a demo for how Yelp for restaurants can help you engage more effectively with your customers. The link for that is also in the description, aka the show notes, or available on justincana.com slash Yelp. Let's roll the outro. Well, well, here we are together again at the end of another episode of the Repertoire Podcast. If this is your first time listening, this is a show for hospitality creators who want to think better, increase their performance, and believe that it's possible to take lessons from what others have already learned. I am your host, Justin Kana, and if you're new here, I'd like to personally welcome you to the show. I hope you enjoyed this episode. Friendly heads up to check out the show notes inside of the description of this podcast if you want to check out previous guests, links to specifics that got brought up in this episode, as well as other helpful content that we create and share here online because everything we do is focused on helping you along your journey. If you don't have a ton of time, the best place to start is with some value sent straight to your inbox every single week. It's called the Repertoire Newsletter, where we share knowledge on sharpening your skills, asymmetric upside, and exploring the industry beyond the status quo. If you subscribe, we'll keep you up to date on trends that are shaping the hospitality creator ecosystem. We'll share discounts on gear that we find, as well as content that we've been producing ourselves and helpful articles that we've already read and decided are worth your time. Last up, if you want to connect with other other industry professionals in the Repertoire Pro community. You want to check out courses like Total Station Domination or download free tools that we've created. You can learn more at joinrepertoire.com. That's J-O-I-N-R-E-P-E-R-T-O-I-R-E.com. The only ask from me is that if you enjoyed this episode, I'd really appreciate a review of this show on Apple Podcasts as well as Spotify to help the podcast universe know that people like us like shows like this. Regardless, I'll see you in the next episode. My name is Justin Kana, and I hope you have a good one.